but a lot of the challenges that we describe as complex aren't indeed complex. And actually, I make sure I tell people difficult does not equal complex. Just because it's hard to do doesn't mean it's complex. It just means you don't have the skills or you haven't figured it out or you haven't brought the right people together to actually work on the problem. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Welcome to another episode of The Thinking Leader. Marcus, who do we have with us today? We have got a gentleman I've been looking forward to chatting to for a long time. We have Nigel Thurlow joining us today. And Nigel is an expert in organizational design. He's an author, a renowned speaker who serves as a consultant to industry and business agility. And as an expert in the application of cross-disciplinary methods and approaches to accelerate business transformation, which I am all about talking about. So, Nigel, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you having me along. I'm not sure about the word expert, but we'll dig in a bit and see whether we (laughs) we can apply that label somewhere during the conversation. We can indeed. So, Nigel, you know, your background is is quite impressive. Do you want to give us just a quick canter through of where you've come from and where we are today. Yeah, I've been very lucky. I mean, I started off as a techie decades ago and then went into project management because it paid better than being a techie and then went into management because it paid better than being a project manager. (laughs) Um, And then I got lucky. I got hired by Toyota at some point in my project management and and sort of uh, technical management career. And they taught me probably the best five years of my professional career when I first joined them. They taught me everything about the Toyota production system. I worked for people from the manufacturing side, although I didn't work on the manufacturing lines per se, but I worked with a lot of people who had been bought and bought up in the manufacturing world. So I learned TPS extensively. Can I just jump in here and tell you that I, I've been a lifelong student of TPS. I, I know I, Jeff Liker well. Uh, who 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 literally wrote the book on Toyota's uh, production system? I've had the op- opportunity to sit with Akio-san and have him walk through wow. for me. Yeah, how his how his grandfather developed this, how Ono-san developed it, how all of this was built upon layers. And I even went to to Toyota City, and they they took me through the archives. And I tell you, you are absolutely right. To get that privilege, to get to spend time learning the Toyota way, the Toyota production system, that's going to stand you in great stead for whatever you do, not just manufacturing. I'm jealous yeah. that you spent time with uh, with Toyota-san and talked about his family. Two things I'll say, I should have bought my Sokios with me. If you have no idea what Sokios are, you probably know, Brice, but a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic sort of changed the world, um, Akio, bless him, he had these pairs of socks made with his sort of meme on them, and uh, they were called Sokios. So they gave a bunch out. Well, people were wearing them. Well, I kept mine brand new and pristine in the package. 
Bryce is going to want a pair for Christmas. I know. One day they'll be worth a fortune, I guess. You know, so I'll sell my sockios when I'm old and poor. Um, but the the other thing is in the new book with myself and my co-author Professor Turner have been writing on some of our work on flow and some of the ideas we've got. We, I actually decided to sit down and write a whole section on lean thinking, not to extend about 35, 40 pages, but I wanted to correct some of the misnomers and the, the bunkum and the nonsense that's on social media about what TPS is and what it isn't and what Jidoka is and what Jidoka isn't and things of that nature. And uh, so I'm hoping that that's, and I, Fortunately, I got John Shook and Charlie Protzman and others to peer review it and to edit it and to tell me. And actually, John was very generous. He contributed some really cool stuff that uh, they'd written about in one of their books from the 70s, but also some internal stuff from the 80s. He'd worked on some A3s and some of the outcomes of those A3s. So that was really an opportunity to contribute back and to sort of give people just a, a nice introduction to what we mean by lean thinking and its origins in TPS. Um but so can I, you just yeah. for our listeners who aren't familiar with TPS or just some of the principles, could you just give them a, a 60 second kind of crash course into it? Wow. I just wrote 35, 40 pages on this. You want 60 seconds? So <laughs> um, so TPS, Toyota Production System, was born out of necessity. And in fact, before TPS was born, there was there was necessity. Um, and so in the very early days of Toyota, they were a loom company. They made weaving looms to make fabric. You know this because you've been through the whole story. Um, and from that came the concept of Jidoka, which is badly translated as automation with the human touch. It's much deeper meaning than that. But essentially, it was the ability for a machine to tell a human operator when it had a problem. And in this case, when a thread broke. So that became the first underlining sort of principle of what became the Toyota production system was using machines to do the things that humans shouldn't waste the time doing and then use the humans to make intelligent decisions and do the things that humans are better at doing. And that's where this idea of the machine can tell you when it was faulty and then we could sort of execute uh, and, and work a little bit more effectively. Fast forward a little bit. It's been longer than 60 seconds, but less than two minutes. That's all right. So, as much fast, time as you want. So fast forward a little bit. And uh, the son of the founder, his name was Sakichi Toyoda, was the founder. So this is Akio's great-grandfather or grandfather, I forget now. Yeah. And, uh, and then so, uh, but his son, Kichiro Toyoda, comes along. And he's the one who takes uh, Toyota, as we know it now, into the auto manufacturing business by selling the plans, the blueprints to this original weaving loom to a British company in Birmingham called Platt Brothers in about 1924 for £100,000, so a bunch of money back in 1924. And Kichiro Toyoda muses with the problem of waste and muses with the problem of the fact that, you know, post-World War II Japan, uh, they have none of the materials, none of the resources, none of the capability of the West, especially in America. And so he muses with the fact that they've got to find a way to be able to produce more with less. So the concept of just-in-time was born. And in the, in the new chapter in the book, I talk about this and some of the uh, direct quotes and citations from the Toyota material that sort of talk about that. And so originally, the this and these that becomes the second principal pillar of the Toyota production system. 
But essentially, it was born out of need. TPS, Toyota Production System, born out of need is that they couldn't afford the machinery, the tooling, the materials and everything else. And to quote one of the key architects of TPS, Taichi Ono, he said the fundamental doctrine of the Toyota Production System is the total elimination of waste. And that's yeah. a direct quote from his book with Mito San when he, he wrote that book's one that sticks in my head. Uh, and of course, Kanban, there's lots of people will all be rushing around and I've written a bit about Kanban to correct some of the nonsense there as well, became the sort of fundamental capability of TPS to enable just in time all this total elimination of waste to be enacted upon. And, and for the listeners, Kanban isn't just a board full of post-it notes in to do, doing and done columns. So anyway, it's there not, you go. That's my six. And it's an amazing <laughs> thing. And and, and and like we mentioned, it's 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 applicable to everything, not just mm-hmm. production. And you know, it, it it's it, it's the philosophy. It's the it's the total elimination of waste. It's the continuous improvement. It's the it's the Genshigen Butsu management by walking around. All these principles that that come from this. And we have to be, be sure that waste is. This one of the challenges, when, and, and I suffer with it because I don't speak Japanese. I know lots of Japanese words and what they mean, but I have no ability to speak Japanese, unlike mm. a lot of my friends and colleagues. You and me both. But when we talk about waste, what we actually mean is non-value-added activity. So any activity that doesn't add value to the product or process or the, the work that we're doing. Um, when you use the word waste in Latin America, they just think of garbage or trash or rubbish, <laughs> you know, depending on your language. So it, yeah. we, it's important to qualify that. And, and sort of the understanding behind TPS is about identifying, say, the word muda, which is the Japanese word that's generically used for waste in, in lean circles, really talks about the uselessness and the futility of what we're doing. So when you dig deeper into the meanings, and I speak to a lot of Japanese people who understand the meanings of their own language, you start to realize it's more than just about waste. It's about really mm-hmm. understanding the work we do, the deep, the deepness and the, the thinking behind the work we do, and actually understanding of futility, the uselessness, the pointlessness of some of the activity, which a lot of modern organizations would do well to focus on if we think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. An interesting thing is, is one, of, one of the ways that Kichiro-san learned about this was actually by visiting Ford Motor Company's Rouge plant, famously. He came to America. He got a tour of the Rouge factory in at, shortly after they started making cars in Japan. And he he took notes. He saw, and in those days, Ford did this. They were, they were Henry Ford was just as obsessed about reducing waste as, as Toyota became in those days. And in fact, I don't know if they, they sell this in the UK, but in, in the US, every barbecue you see uh, Kingsford charcoal, these charcoal briquettes. Those were actually Kings Ford is Kings Ford. They were invented by Ford because Henry Ford was driven to, 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 to iration by the fact that every day at the end of every shift, there were piles of sawdust in the corner of the factory because in those days they made the frames for the, the model mm-hmm. T, T and model A out of wood. And there was coal dust left from firing the furnaces and the smelters. And he told his team, this is unacceptable to every day be shoveling this into landfills. We have this, this sawdust and this coal dust. Find something to do with it. And what they figured out to do with it was to make charcoal briquettes. Somehow Ford lost all of that. 
in the succeeding decades and Toyota became the keen student. I think a lot of companies have lost that that sort of, yeah. you know, philosophy of, you yeah. know, eliminating wasteful activity and repurposing and reimagining what we can do. And actually in the work I do on complexity thinking, we talk about exaptation and the simple the, the, the one they always use about dinosaurs with, you know, have feathers and feathers were originally for, you know, displaying to get a partner. And then suddenly a dinosaur fell off a cliff and learned to fly. Something like that, it goes. <laughs> but the, the microwave oven was an exaptation of the magnetron, which was designed in the 50s yes. for radar. And the guy who was working in Raytheon at the time, I forget his name, it should come to me. Uh, he had a bar of chocolate in his pocket and it started melting when they were testing things. And they, they repurposed the magnetron for cooking the first mm-hmm. microwave was patented by Raytheon and the rest is history, but that's a, a, an exaptation. And so it's repurposing for something that was never intended for. And a lot of innovation can come from exaptation. And what you just described was a very, a very early in, uh, you know, example of exapting something that was seen as waste, but became a valuable commodity, a product we could sell. But I think that when I look at companies and organizations I go into to talk to today and I talk about these principles, we see that we've been very good at creating more and more needless, pointless, futile processes to manage what ostensibly is a simple system. But we've created complexity out of simplicity. Well, we've just, I mean, I've mused with my friend Dave Snowden that uh, all, all, yeah, well, well, he tells me I'm wrong, but he never tells me why. But I, I, we are very good friends, <laughs> thankfully. But uh, he's far cleverer than I am. But he said, uh, I said to him that I think all organizational complexity is human derived. That's my proposition for what I jokingly called a few years ago Nigel's law, because everybody's got a law. So I thought, well, I'll have a law. Uh, and Craig Arthur <laughs> created laws, so I thought I'd create one. But and I muse on that, and I sort of I challenge organisations. I said, if you remove all the humans, are the problems still complex? Or are they now relatively simple to solve? You may need a bit of expertise, which puts it into that sort of difficult category, but are they truly complex? I mean, are we really talking, you know, mm-hmm. you know, world hunger and, and you know, uh, climate change is the size of problems? Or are we really talking about reasonably simple things to solve? And have we created this vast complexity by the way we've built these these organizations without thinking of those key principles that date back to some of the things you were saying about Kichiro and, and others? But, you know, Nigel's law applies to those things as well, I would submit. You know, yep. this is something I, I'm going to say something controversial and we'll lose some, some listeners over this, but I don't care. You know, this is something I talk about all the time. We have we hit we 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 set up problems and say they're complex problems because they're hard. Yes. A complex complexity is not a measure of hardness. Correct. And so, for instance, a big one in the United States is gun control. You know, we regularly slaughter each other with assault rifles in this country. And then people wave their hands and say, oh, it's it's such a complex problem. It's so hard to solve. New Zealand solved it in two weeks. There's nothing complex about it. But to Nigel's law, the point of Nigel's law, yeah. it's the people that make it impossible to solve. The solution is clear. Yeah. And you can extend that to many different things we talk about. I try and skirt around the controversial topics in this this cancellation culture we have now that anything you say that might be wrong, you have to be so careful of. But you are right that a lot of the challenges that we describe as complex aren't indeed complex. Now, Dave has said sometimes if a team lacks skills that can make what is ostensibly a simple problem, Mm -hmm. an obvious thing, complex, because 
we don't know right. what we're doing until we know what we're doing then the problem is seen as complex but that's why things like the Kinevin framework help us figure out where we are but a lot of the time and in the thing you said about complex is not a measure of difficulty and actually I make sure I tell people difficult does not equal complex yeah. Um, because they, just because right. it's hard to do doesn't mean it's complex. It just means you don't have the skills or you haven't figured it out mm-hmm. or you haven't brought the right people together to actually work on the problem. Um, but everybody likes to blame everything on complexity. And, and if they've done and nothing it's a buzzword, else, isn't it? It becomes yeah. a cool thing to be engaging and doing. And, hey, if we're doing complexity stuff, then clearly we are up there with the big boys, you know. And Dave has really helped stop that nonsense out there as yeah. as, 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 as no, he's not controversial, but as sometimes as divisive as he might be, just occasionally. Um, just every now and then. Well, he's just he's just he's, curmudgeonly. Yeah, that's the word. I mean, he's just he just doesn't suffer fools easily, and you know, and he just corrects the, the nonsense. And mm-hmm. you know, some of us do it a little more subtly than others, but we all do it ultimately. And but what Dave has done is helped educate us on the difference when we're looking at various different systems we work in, and understanding the difference between an ordered system and a system that's not ordered or unordered or uh, more complex. And that's been extremely valuable. I want to just mention because you mentioned about Ford, and and something interesting I found is Ford didn't invent the moving production line, although Correct. everybody in the world thinks it did. The Venetians did in the 1500s. The okay, now much- I didn't know that because yeah. I, so so I, the thing that I've taught people is is that, and people don't know this, is that Henry Ford created the, the moving assembly line after Correct. studying Swift, which had a moving disassembly line because Swift, which is the largest meat packer in the US, had a moving line for cutting up up meat but tell me about the phoenicians because this is news to me so i discovered this because a few years ago i was three four years ago i was doing some work in italy and i was presented to some companies and doing some you know org, org stuff and leadership stuff and and they pulled me up on this you can read about it on wikipedia even but i i made some visuals to sort of teach people about this but in the venetian the in the arsenal in venice so where they built the warships and because at one time the venetians ah the venetians not the phoenicians yeah. i misheard you okay i can believe <laughs> this now phoenicians. i know where you're going now phoenicians okay with a v yeah um yeah. so but they had the literally a flow system under the arsenal, the canals, the rivers, the the estuary, you know, so the water would be flowing through and they would literally assemble the ships in sequential order. So they'd start with the building the hull and they'd float the hull down to each of the stations, which would build the, oh, the wow. successive pieces. Terminology makes sense now. Point, I forget the number, but 30, 40,000 people, they could build a ship a day. It was literally was one piece flow in the fi- late 1500s, early 1600s. And that's where the, the, the sort of real, the earliest known real moving production line was in operation. And they were super efficient at building ships. Absolutely fascinating. That's exactly how Henry Ford built B-24 bombers during World War II. I've been to the factory, since been turned down, but the Willow Run factory, uh, the floor of the factory slopes at a slight, it sloped at a slight incline from the, the beginning of the factory to the end, which ended in a hangar opening to a runway. Yes. And they would, as soon as they got the undercarriage on the bombers... They removed the chocks and the bomber, the incline was so perfectly created that the weight of the bomber would carry the bomber at a speed sufficient for people to do their jobs. That's incredible. Until it reached the last station where a pilot was waiting in his flight suit 
to jump into the cockpit and take it for its shakedown flight over Lake Michigan. That's test. That's testing and learning straight away, isn't it? The one thing Ford did teach, uh, you know, Toyota, I guess, was the fact that if, instead of the people coming to the product, the product goes to the people. Right. And that, mm-hmm. that's exactly what you just described there. And if anybody understands Kanban and, and TPS from a manufacturing point of view, it really is the preceding step calling for the, sorry, the successive step calling for the preceding step to do work or deliver something. And, and it really is, if you get it right, it's just this synchronicity, this beautiful ballet that just happens in these, these complicated production lines. Well, that's the thing is Toyota took it to such a higher level. I've been, I've actually been on both a Toyota production line and a Ford production line. Um, out there, there's, there's a, there's probably a, a, about a hundred Ford focuses out in the world that really shouldn't be out there because I worked on them. Um, and they have screws rattling around in them. But, you know, the, the thing about, as you know, having worked at Toyota, is not only does the product come to them, everything that they need comes to them. Yes. So when you're attaching a mirror on an assembly line, on a Toyota assembly line, as the door comes to you that needs the mirror, a chute opens up and a little box, little tray with the screws and the attachments that you need to Just install that mirror falls out. You pick it up. You use your 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 gun to, to to attach it easy peasy. I installed mirrors on on a Ford production line around the same time, and there I had a parts box where I had parts you know boxes of a thousand of each different types of screw, and every type of mirror had a different set of connectors, and I had to like pick through and is you know it was kind of it was not. See, good. I, I but, had um, a couple of things on that specifically, yeah. but I was lucky enough to spend a tremendous amount of time in Kentucky at the, the largest Toyota plant in the world. Yeah. At one time, the largest manufacturing assembly plant anywhere in the world before the Chinese built one a little bit bigger. Um, and I don't have the detail on that, but I was lucky enough to spend hours, literally hours on production lines, watching, observing, learning, studying, being taught things. Um, and it was truly fascinating, the, just the synchronicity of everything that's moving, the robotic machinery that's bringing parts and components just in time and it's pulling things. And as the, the technicians are pulling parts or components off and it's automatically updating the Kanban and the machines are off, the robots are off to fetch and replenish from a, you know, a, a supermarket system internally. So it's a beautiful thing to see and the way they've managed to take something as extensive and to most people, hideously complex, but to most people in Toyota, beautifully ordered, have been able to bring this thing to fruition. And my boss did once tell me that they would never probably build anything that big again as, as the size of the Kentucky plant, because you literally go from a roll of steel to a car and everything yeah. in between. And there's very little manu- not manufactured on site. Seats and tires are about the only things that are, are bought in. And you've got this continuous procession of trucks bringing things in just enough, just in time. And when you see how all the various lines and all the various sub-assemblies and sub-components work beautifully, it is just a fascinating thing to see. But just to that point on nuts and bolts, the one one thing I learned in Kentucky and in most Toyota plants, there's a, a whole physical workout area, gymnasium inside the plant. Yeah. And when you first go to become a line worker, work on the production lines in Toyota, you need to be physically fit. And so yeah. you go through this whole physical training course before you're allowed to work on the lines like doing boot camp when you're a soldier yeah. or something, you know, you go off to do your, your initial six weeks of basic it's training. It's hard work. It is hard work. It's tremendously hard work. 
and it's highly skilled. But what they also teach them, they teach them a bunch of things like being able to reach back and feel yep. for nuts and bolts in containers. And you can tell it's a 13 mil or a half inch nut just by touching it uh, because looking back and searching for it is waste. It's non-value added yep, yep. activity. So it, Toyota truly have taken the level of eliminating non-value added activity to the nth degree to the point that some, and, and some people can't do it. I mean, people, let me tell you, the people who work on a TPS line are phenomenal people because their level of skill and discipline is beyond, it's far greater than mine. I just wouldn't have the patience to do that. They're highly disciplined, highly trained, highly skilled, but they've been skilled to a level where waste is just eliminated at every possible opportunity. And of course, when you get into Kaizen and continuous improvement, and of course, Kaizen just doesn't translate to continuous improvement. But when you get into that ethos of these same people looking continuously how to improve what they do rather than just doing what they do, they're looking constantly to improve it. You have a fantastic environment that's been created there. And that, I think, is the most important thing. That is the thing that is that has impressed me most when I've been in Toyota factories is, you know, famously, a lot of people know this. Every worker has the ability to pull a stop a stop rope on their on their station. Every worker gets paid a Kaizen bonus if they figure out a way to do their job or anybody's job more efficiently. When I was at one of the main factories in Toyota City, I think it was back in 2007, the plant manager proudly took me into a room that was filled with machines that had all been developed by line workers. And what these machines were was part of Toyota's green initiative. They were all things that workers had figured out that they could use gravity instead of electrical power wow. to actuate different parts of the assembly line. And, and the workers, as you know, they come in on the weekends on their own time and work on these things. They get a bonus. They get it's a, In those days, it was equivalent to like $500. It's not nothing, but it's not huge. But it's the pride they take. And, and and recognizing that they're not just cogs in the wheel. They're part of the system. They're part of this continuous improvement process. And that is, to me, is the biggest thing that every organization should learn from Toyota. You know, you mentioned uh, Dave Marquette earlier on when we were chatting. And, of course, I, I was lucky enough to spend a bit of time with Dave when he was doing his Turn the Ship Around tours and things. And he and I actually ran a small green room together for at a conference, which was a lot of fun at the time. Oh, um, that sounds great. But when you talk about leaders in tank, because people often talk about Toyota, and it is a very command and control company, but yep. not in the mm -hmm. traditional sense of command and control. There's a lot of strict discipline, and if you've ever worked with a Japanese company, you'll understand why. So I often describe the command and control as top-down command, bottom-up control. And if you start to think about that from you know leader's intent or what Dave calls commander's intent, in my work we changed it subtly to because managers and executives don't like the word commander. So we, we call it leader's intent, same thing. You start to get that understanding in Toyota where there is an intent from the leaders. And that intent is expressed clearly, unambiguously. And also they give you their, in, their idea of how they think that intent would be fulfilled. 
So that's the leader's intent from their side. But then the intent comes up from the workers on the line, from everybody involved in designing, building, assembling, improving the products, because they give an intent of how they're going to meet the leader's intent. And that's part of how this is supposed to work. We've got this distributed leadership. We've got this empowerment to the people who do the work. You talked about the Andon cord, which is their ability to stop if there's a problem or a defect. And and sometimes when I talk about it, and I have to remember the numbers now, and if the listeners will correct me if I'm completely off mark here, but they used to tell me in Kentucky, they'd pull the Andon cord at least 3,000 thousand times a day on a shift yeah. now people are like staggered because they think toyota nobody pulls the cord what's the point we don't need to pull the cord but the idea is that the minute you see something that's slightly out of whack whatever it happens to be you pull the cord mm-hmm. and we have a certain amount of time as the line moves to its fixed position stop before it'll automatically stop to rectify it may be a mistalk bolt or something minor yep. or whatever it may be but we we you're so ingrained, you pull the cord to immediately alert. The yellow light goes on. The the London Bridge is falling down. Music plays in Kentucky. The, all these lines have their own musical tunes for reasons. <laughs> and um, and of course, the supervisor comes over. You they inspect the problem. They, they either fix it, make a decision. And if the line hits the fixed position, stop. It will go red, and, and everything stops. The whole plant grinds to a halt, end to end. Thousands of workers. Why they fix the problem? This is the empowerment. That's the distributed leadership within that context. And of course, we are building quality in because we fix things as we find. There's no such thing as QA or QC at the end of the line. That's a horrific way to build cars or build any product, software otherwise. So we build the quality in continuously. But this is where we get, we've got the leader's intent built into the way that system works. And we've sort of got the command and control sort of figured out. Is it perfect? No. And there's still elements there that can improve. But we have a system that just works really, really well. So so when you're in there, Nigel, I know you came up with Scrum the Toyota way, which is where I first came across you. How was how has that evolved? Because, you know, Scrum to many is either the, the silver bullet or the Achilles heel, and it goes up and down with people's opinions and perspectives. So what did you what did you take from the perspective of your position in Toyota? using Scrum as a framework, and how did you make that different so within Toyota itself? Talking at the beginning of this bit about my origin, and I said I spent a number of years in Europe, in TME, Toyota Motor Europe, learning from the true experts of this, and mm-hmm. I was very lucky to get some of the just the best training. It changed my life. I mean, it changed my career, changed everything I've done, and everything I do now is because of that initial period of my career, which is just one of those things. Uh, you know, being an expert, don't know, but I did get lucky in a lot of places and got to work with a lot of experts. So then I, I sort of marry an American, so I get the blue passport and, you know, and become a citizen, you know, and I live in the great state of Texas now. Couldn't be a better place to live, but um, although others will dispute that. Um, and then I end up working working with the this guy who had something to do with creating scrum this guy goes by the name of jeff and uh, i was doing some work for the state of massachusetts and the guy at the state of mass around their pmo said hey nigel you, you're helping us out here but we're getting trained by one of the guys who created scrum do you want to come and sit in in one of his courses and, and let us know what your thoughts are and so you can align terminology mm-hmm. and things with what you're coaching as well. I said, yeah, it's a fantastic idea. So I went along to a product owner class that Jeff Sutherland was teaching. And uh, in that class, he used to teach a very 
quick and dirty version of A3 thinking, A3 problem solving, because both Jeff and Ken are big fans of Toyota and cite it in a lot of their work. And if you if you know the origins of, of TPS and lean thinking and a lot of the te- techniques in there, you understand where Scrum sort of evolved out of, or at least some of the influences. Uh, and indeed, Ken says... It, Scrum's based on TPS and empiricism from DuPont. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff sort of throws in a bit about fighter aviation because of his OODA loop stuff that my friend Ponch talks about a little bit. And so uh, I ended up working with Jeff, uh, you know, as a consultant to his company for a while. I got to meet him. And during that first class, he brought up this A3 thing and he asked me if I'd actually say something about it. So I ended up teaching about 40 minutes in his class about the A3 and figured out some of the problems in his example was just a bit of fun. And then from there, built a relationship and ended up doing a lot of work with Jeff on and off over a few years. And I was in his office the day that Toyota called and said, the Toyota North America, literally down the road from where I live in Plano, Texas now, but they used to be out in Torrance, California. And they called up and said, we've heard this stuff about Scrum. We might be interested. Now I'm paraphrasing. But I knew most of the people because I'd known them from my early days in Toyota. And I, I was on the call. Fast forward a bit and I'm out in California delivering a leadership workshop to an executive group, teaching them the parallels between Scrum and, and sort of the you know TPS or the influences. Mm-hmm. And, and that led to an initial engagement with Jeff, which led to me actually joining Toyota again as a, in an executive role at uh, Toyota Connected. And then part of my, but my work there was really to teach the people in Toyota that this thing called Scrum, which was a really useful technique for planning work, it's a planning cadence, um, might be useful in helping them develop their digital systems and software systems and things behind some of the awesome work they do. And what we found is the people who did TPS for a day job, they're the people in the plants, not the people in the offices. The people who did TPS who lived and breathed it just understood this and got it in in seconds. They just knew what it meant and how it worked. And what and the way I describe it, I even described it in a Slack channel this morning. I was having a chat with some PSTs, some professional Scrum trainers, um, that uh, Scrum is basically PDCA with discipline. So if you understand Plan, Do, Check, Act, and uh, then all it does is bolt some discipline around that. And Toyota were very good at PDCA, but it was sort of more like plan, <laughs> check, act. And, yeah. and I sort of said we needed a bit more. And so that was where it started. The idea started to be born. I've been very lucky. We taught uh, Scrum in Japan. In fact, Jeff was over there at the time. Uh, so we did some, we taught Scrum in T- TMC. I did more work la- uh, after that with them once I'd rejoined Toyota. And I taught probably four and a half thousand plus people across Toyota worldwide. Um, but the Scrum the Toyota way thing started off as a play on words. We, are we doing Scrum the Toyota way, mm-hmm. or are we scrumming the Toyota way? Um, oh, I love that. That's and, great. Uh, it start, and, but what it became in the end was his scrum, fantastic thing, but it's missing a bunch of bits. And, and it's meant to be, you know, they describe it as a basic framework, yeah, and which other things can be built, but it was missing some of the deeper fundamental teaching, in my view, of what was necessary to understand why, the why behind some of these things. So bringing TPS learning and training and fundamentals that helped explain the why, but then some of the things that Scrum brought to the party was giving the discipline around how we executed and some of the fundamentals that we got from TPS. So the two, it's never an, it's not a, you know, a one or the other, it's not an or, it's an and. 
So these things are symbiotic, one being predominantly based on the other, but one helping bring discipline to its fundamental origins. Oh, that's great. This is such good stuff. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit more about uh, not just Scrum, the Toyota way, but also agile and digital transformation in air quotes. If you like what you've been hearing in this episode and you want to learn more about red team thinking, or you want to learn how to become a red team coach, a red team thinker, a red team practitioner, go to our website, redteamthinking.com and register for our free Red Team Coaching Bootcamp. Like I said, it's absolutely free. It's available in last half of February, first half of March. Go there, check it out. Seats are limited. Love to see you in the course. So welcome back. Had a great conversation during the break, most of which we can't publish, but we're going to talk about some (laughs) great stuff now. Nigel, I want to talk to you about... The myth of agile transformation. Mm. Talk to me about it. Yeah, well, so I'm going to give you all the teasers from the new book, but I did put a teaser <laughs> on my website. You probably know because you read it. Um, but uh, so you could change the word agile to anything else, lean, or yep. insert favorite phrase, dash transformation here. Um, but the challenge that we tend to have, and, and there's lots of reasons I'm, I'm sure we'll go into about this. The challenge we have with most organizations is the problem is ill-defined. And so I put my lean hat back on when I'm going into these agile transformation. Uh, uh, typically, I get called into companies like many people who are old like me now get called into when things aren't quite working out well. They go look for somebody who's a bit battle-scarred and experienced. And they say, can you come help us? And you sort of mm-hmm. go in and you sort of look at what they were doing and they've implemented, you know, the infamous Spotify method that's really fake and doesn't exist and, and or other nonsense that might be related to a safe type practice uh, and other things of that nature. And they go, it's not working. And I go, well, what's the problem you think you're trying to solve? Mm-hmm. You know, what do, what is the problem? And because they'll moan and bemoan and groan about revenue and profit and costs and customers and all sorts of other stuff, uh, you know, and the, the great resignation, which was basically we did decided not to come back and work for you because you treated us so badly during the pandemic. We got better paying, better quality jobs. It's a great migration, so not a resignation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. The great migration, not the resignation. Yeah. So I sort of sit down and I say, what do you think the problem is? And they tell me all these things and I tell them they're not problems, they're outcomes, they're results. They're results of how you do what you do. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like how you do what you do, you better change how you do what you do. So if you want a better result or a better outcome, and this is my putting my Toyota head back on and thinking about, you know, materials and information flow analysis, better known outside Toyota as value stream mapping. And I go, how do you get from concept to cash from an idea to some value delivery? And then we start figuring out, oh, so this, when you went and bought this thing from McKinsey or from Accenture or whoever, you know, Deloitte, whoever, I mention them all, then I don't get accused of. Because they're all as bad as each other. Yeah. um, But you go, you go and you talk to one of these big consulting houses and you go, uh, we suck. Please give us a solution. And they walk in with a bunch of PowerPoint decks 
and uh, and a bunch of people are really good at writing PowerPoint decks and give you some framework they've co-opted from somebody else, like the Spotify example. Yeah. And, and the same decks, by the way, that they gave to your competitor a week ago. <laughs> you know, different color. Basic yeah. approach, yeah. It worked. Yeah. It worked in a factory, so it'll definitely work in in a software development house, and it, of course, it'll work in a hospital just as equally as as well. Uh, never do scrum in the operating room, folks. Bad idea. People die. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, but so I get them to have this conversation and I get them to start to really look at what the real problem is because they've got this idea, they buy this PowerPoint deck and, and literally uh, in the example I gave on my website, they really did buy a PowerPoint deck, uh, 150 odd slides of a PowerPoint deck that told them how to run a major program and it just failed miserably for reasons you'd probably expect. Yeah. But um, so I really get them to look at this and I start to say, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Because until you really understand the problem, then the problem definition is ill-defined. And if the problem definition is ill-defined, then things you consider are solutions or even using the lean language countermeasures to those problems also are going to be ill-defined. It's a solution looking for a problem rather than a problem being identified so we can find the appropriate tools and techniques to mitigate some of the, the impacts of the problem. So that's what I mean by the agile transformation myth. No, I, I totally agree. And I think a lot of these tools that that haven't been used with good intent from their origins have become almost the quick plaster, the Band-Aid that people yeah. see as their solution and they pull them off the shelf and it was Tiziano, wasn't it, who said, you know, before you implement lean, TPS, insert now, agile, scrum, whatever, you must first change the way you think. Yeah. And I don't see people thinking, I've got, and I've got a quote I use, you know, all these 21st century ways of working aren't working because we're still using 20th century ways of thinking. We've not evolved the human element and the brain to keep up with this. You know, I wrote a LinkedIn post on that the other day, musing that we're using project management techniques that were devised in the 50s and 60s right, uh, yeah. in, in 2023. And our fundamental context has shifted. Our technology has shifted. The complexity of what we do has shifted significantly because in the 1970s when I was writing software, it was, trust me, really, really easy. 1K of memory space and very simple language set. You couldn't do a great deal. And there were no, there were no, they had no way of taking the software away with you unless it was on binary punch tape. And I really did at university print out my software programs on binary punch tape. That was my disaster, well, my backup and my disaster recovery was 128 character green and white bar. You know, I printed it out and I'd have to key it all back in. That was really what it was like. People listening to this will wonder what who the hell I am now. But, um, Do you speak so hexadecimal? I used to learn a little bit of hex, but I, I was sort of, I was, what we used to call them, 3GL or something was basic, a 3GL language. I think it was, or was it 4GL? I forget now, but. I can't um, remember. But uh, so anyway, I learned basic, then COBOL, and I and my I studied on what was called Unisys on VAX systems. And, yes. Um, so, but, you know, we really are showing our age now because, as I say, people, Less than because we know what Unisys is. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
And, and, and we th- and we know that a vax system is not a way of delivering COVID nineteen vaccines. <laughs> no, and it's not a, not a not a thing you clean your carpets with either. So right. uh, you know, but um, no. So I lost my train of thought there, Marcus. Bring me the back. way we think, changing the way we think about this. Well, no, you know, I want. I just want. I just want to, you know, throw in something on what you say. I mean, this is this is what we. I mean, you're you're, you're preaching to the converted here. I mean. You know the 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 tools and techniques that that form the basis of, of red team thinking are things that were developed by the military and the intelligence community to deal with the war on terror and the ambiguous operating environments that we yeah. operate in today. And this is what I always tell businesses: is that you're still using planning techniques from from almost almost you know seventy five years ago. Yeah, and and yet the world you live in today is so much more volatile, so much more uncertain, so much more complex, so much more ambiguous, and so much more connected than it was then. And, and it's like Marcus said you you can't you can't you can't utilize new ways of working if you're still mired in in these old ways of thinking. You know, I'll throw out. I mean, I'll throw out a shout out to my my friend and colleague and, and third co-author in the first book we put out, which is the the Flow System book. Uh, Brian Ponch Rivera Ponch being his sort of handle and nickname from from the U.S. Navy as a F fourteen fighter pilot, a, a, as a carrier fighter pilot. I have to make sure. Tomcat pilot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know the whole Air Force Navy thing. They don't, you know, they they poppy. I'm I'm never served in the military, so all the military folks are throwing <laughs> things at the screen. Now. Now. But but to, to give Punch a great deal of credit, uh, he brought a lot of that naval thinking to the work that myself, Professor Turner and Punch put together. And of course, red team thinking was really something we, we put into the flow system. Now, you're specialists and experts in that. We incorporated it into our work. Punch has got a lot of deep knowledge in there and you'll read a lot of the things he writes online. Um, but he echoes a lot of the thinking that the, the techniques, the approaches, the, the planning methods and everything we're still applying in 2023 were invented when we were sort of, you know, still turning computers by steam and they were filling rooms <laughs> almost. Yeah. Uh, and people yeah, forget the Gantt chart came out of like the early 1900s and it was meant for building things like the Hoover Dam, um, right. not for not for designing, you know, the digital systems and the, the platforms we do today. But the red teaming is something I, I teach a lot of executives. And even at the very simplistic level is you've made a plan. Now let's invite some other people that understand the context but weren't involved mm-hmm. in making the plan to tell you everything you got wrong with the plan. And we may, right. we may talk about that in techniques in complexity thinking called complex facilitation. We'll use things like ritual descent. Uh, and those sort of same techniques are erring in this red teaming area because we are trying to challenge what we've tried to put together. But the amount of people who spend their life making plans about plans and this concept of ever challenging of any critical thinking or critical observation of the plan is just non-existent. And the majority of the companies I go into who've got agile transformation problems, they're mired in dependencies, just endless dependency chains. And you talked about interconnectivity, but we're talking about literally everything dependent on everything else. And they've just Mm -hmm. created these systems that are incapable of delivering value in any level of time, timeliness and any level of high, high level of quality uh, meeting. I mean, and Poncho, I was talking to him yesterday about 
uh, red teaming a little bit because I knew this was coming up. And I thought, well, I go talk to my expert on this so I don't look a fool. And um, and he was saying, remember, the customer is your ultimate red team. Right. We, we, we often say that. But I would build on that, Nigel. I would build on that and say, so is your competitor. Because, you know, here's the thing is, is 50 years ago, if you made a mistake, your customer would tell you a quarter from now, six months from now, and then you could take that if you were a smart company and learn from that and adjust. Today, if you make a mistake, a competitor you've never even heard of will school you tomorrow. And that's the difference. And that's why these old systems don't work anymore is because the, the time between making a mistake and getting and getting bonked on the head by someone who sees it before you do can be as little as a few hours. Yeah. So, you know, I talk when I talk to executives about agile, I, I tend not to use a lot of the, the buzz for words and phrases because they just get turned off instantly. But when I talk to them about what agility really is versus agile, the philosophy, mm-hmm. agility yeah. being the emergent property. And so I talk to them about it's about predominantly faster decision making. We talk a lot about bias mm-hmm. towards action and better decision making and, and avoiding satisfaction and, and other things uh, that are out there. These habits that enable them to they, they so the difference between action bias and bias towards action. They're making decisions because they have to be seen to be making decisions versus actually making the right decisions more quickly. Um, so action bias being bad, bias towards action being mm-hmm. good. Just for the listeners' de- yeah. Uh, delineation. Yeah, there. we use agile with a lower cases when we're talking about this in our work. Yeah. So and. Then yeah. I so I we talk to them about faster decision making to enable faster decision making, which is that that rapid feedback, which is where that sort of discipline PDCA cycle sort of comes in. Right. But then there's another piece of work from Clay Christensen, Clayton Christensen. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, Harvard yeah. uh, professor emeritus, I think, and he worked on something called disruptive innovation. And so I studied his work on disruptive innovation and I actually knocked up an exercise the other day. I was actually teaching it to a cohort this week because I thought it worked really well with a client about a month ago in Italy. And I, I, my, my own interpretation of his work comes into a two-by-two, two, a simple two-by-two two matrix. In the top right, I've got the disruptive innovators, so the Teslas, the Rivians, and that type of thing. And you can put lots of names that were up there once upon a time. Right. Even Uber were there. And mm-hmm. then in the box to the top left, I've got the disrupted, d- disrupted imitators. So they're yes. the people who are trying to play catch-up to the innovators, the disruptive innovators. Yeah. And then at the bottom to bottom left, I've got the imitators. And the bottom right, I've got the innovators, the people in Indiegogo, Kickstarter, trying to find, you know, that that real, come up with a brand new idea to take them up into that disruptive space. And the, the key there is the disruptive innovator finds customers where there are no customers currently which is what Elon did. He went into a market that was well saturated with major manufacturers and was able to create new customers from existing customers. And often a new entrant into the space and of course are are innovating in a in, in that technology space and indeed that's what's happening but when you come back to this red teaming that what i said to them i drew this two by two on the board with these four categories on and i said where are your products now i said because if all your products are in the imitator which is the commodity space mm-hmm. your differentiator is extremely small if at all any price maybe some notion of quality or customer service. But I said, you're down there with the Walmart and Acme Brick Company who are delivering commodity. 
I said, where do you want to be and how do you get there? How many of your products are in this disruptive innovator space? And somebody said to me the day, do we really want to be there? Because that's that also we may be taking something new to market that's that's volatile and unproven. So maybe we're happy in the imitator space till somebody else takes the risk. Then we'll move in with our size and capability and swallow the market. But this is part of this red teaming type of thinking. It know? is. And, and, and I'll tell you to, to build on that. It's interesting when I when 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 my book Red Teaming came out in 2017 and, and my publisher was you know planning the publicity tour and stuff like this and they were talking about should we do something in Silicon Valley, I said you know I don't think so I said I said Silicon Valley is full of people who already think disruptively like this so let's focus on teach you know teaching these tools and techniques to 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 in places like Detroit you know um, and and I was surprised when one of the first companies I got a call from <clears throat> after the book came out. I'm not going to say the name of the company, but it's a company that everybody knows and that didn't exist, you know, 20 years ago and has completely upended an entire global industry. And I, 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 I came in and I sat down with one of the founders and I told him, I said, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that, that, uh, that you, you wanted to talk to me because you guys are, I mean, you're the ultimate disruptors. And he said, he said, well, yeah, we were a few years ago. That's the point. But here's the, the thing. thing, isn't it? He said, at the end of the day, if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we had one good idea. And it was a really good idea. And that mm -hmm. idea changed the world. But we don't have another one right now. And if we don't figure out how to disrupt ourselves, there's another group of kids who are just like we were a few years ago yeah. who are going to blow us out of the water. You know, that's that's where I put Uber because Uber mm -hmm. were this massive disruptor, but now they're down in the imitator space with Lyft, Grab, and everybody else chomping yeah. at the bit. And I was just in Ireland for nearly three weeks doing some work for a client. And and in, in the in Ireland, the Uber app is actually the taxi companies because you have to be a registered taxi driver that fully yes. licensed, fully trained. And so actually they just leverage the tech to actually give an app to be able to bring taxis to you to where you're standing as opposed to have to find a taxi. Um, and so really the, the, that sort of massive disruptive innovation step that they took just ebbed away and disappeared. And it's now fighting for survival. And, you know, if you want to use the red sea analogy and that sort of sea of everybody else chomping for the same, same, same scraps, yeah. but being in that disruptive innovator space is really hard to stay there. Even if you get yep. there, really hard to remain there and you know i'm going to give you an anecdote the other day and i won't name i mean I'm, it's a toyota anecdote i won't name names for obvious reasons but i was at a wedding you know you go to weddings occasionally and while i was at a wedding i got introduced to somebody who's a very senior person in the quality center at toyota in in north america who's about to head out to japan and head head up a bunch of stuff in japan uh, it's a sort of rite of passage they send people out to japan for two or three years and you come back with your stripes and promotion and, and it's a way they grow their next generation of leaders but he was talking about Toyota and battery electric vehicles which of course is a real hot topic with Accio's view on hydrogen and my personal opinion hydrogen is the future BEV yep. stuff is a stopgap and for lots of reasons the use case doesn't work come try living in Texas and drive a battery vehicle further than the commute and even the commute can be a 60 mile each direction journey you know so the commute's not small um, so I was talking to him about them and he was saying that they'd bought in all sorts of vehicles from different vendors and take them apart as these people do. Each vendor buys each other's vendors cars yep. and pulls them apart and examines them. And he did say, apart from me joking, 
we did said it in all seriousness. The Tesla ones were the worst quality and the worst. Oh, they're ever. abominable. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will tell you, Nigel. I, I said from I was still working as a as a newspaper journalist when Tesla started. I drove the first Tesla, and I said, I give Elon Musk credit for giving a swift kick in the pants to the auto industry and getting them moving. But this guy will never be able to produce a quality vehicle at scale. Yep. And I got death threats over this, and I've said it ever since. But so he's, you know, def he's definitely yeah. a disruptive innovator. He was able to create FOMO beyond you know, fear of missing out right. beyond any you know absolute obsessive fandom around his vehicles and cult. people. It, it, you know, it's, it's Steve Wozniak said that that he's become a cult leader, which he yeah, has. Yeah, it is a cult. It yeah. really is. And and criticizing them, you you do get hate. I mean, the amount of hate on. Oh, I'm, I'm not joking that I've got death threats. Oh, I can yeah. only imagine that because even when I make a veiled comment on LinkedIn or something, the hate that just piles in behind Spews that. Use out, isn't it? Try writing a piece for Forbes and telling them that you think that he's a total charlatan. <laughs> so he he definitely is what the industry needed. But now what's yeah. happened is, I mean, he's also famous for taking the, making the biggest loss in history on any company valuation from a trillion right. dollars to 300 billion. Maybe it was because he messed around with Twitter or maybe it was just a consequence of the bubble starting to burst a little bit. We'll find out in June. And he did it again. Well, this will be out in a few weeks, but we're, as we're recording now, he did it again yesterday. Destroyed 5% yep. of the company's shareholder value with another inane non-presentation. So what we're going to, so what he, what it, so he did a lot of good, but yeah. what's now happening, the anecdote from Toyota is that they've been looking at BV and they weren't, they weren't intending to get into that space, but yeah. the hydrogen technology, and I also do some work with companies that are ha actually heavily involved in hydrogen development, the development of not just the regulators and the pipelines, but also the technology for creating, storing, transmission of that behind the scenes, some, some big names in that industry. Um, so it, it is it is the area everybody's investing in, of course. Uh, and so Toyota probably expected that tech to accelerate more quickly. And the reality is now, the reason they're going into battery electric vehicles is because, and they, I quote the guy now, they have to sell cars. So right. if they don't, they may lose a lot of customers to other manufacturers in this interim period. Yeah, and then when hydrogen that. comes out, they've got to win the customers back. Right. So let's build a really high quality battery electric vehicle that meets the requirement, still bringing out some phenomenal hybrid technology, of course, for people who need the distance journeys. And then once the, the technology is mature, and scalable and there was a company in israel i think it was in israel a couple of days ago announced they've developed tech that can turn seawater into hydrogen so yeah. and that and, and that's a reasonably abundant source of water and at a low energy cost we don't need half the country's bitcoin generation uh, that's interesting because I, I i i remember back when i was still a journalist writing a story about some scientist who'd figured out how to do that but at a high energy cost was the problem so yes that it's yeah. a bit like nuclear fusion once they get the, the 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 cost of creating the fusion down then it will be useful and the same with yeah. with hydrogen and of course distribution and 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 yeah. uh, safety and all those things but that's the reality is that you know the the even the big players like toyota need to be in the space because they have to retain market share and have to retain the customers and right now the customers have a demand for those products and customer first, you know, the, the fundamental principle yeah. of Toyota, then we have to serve the needs, wants, desires of the customers if we want to be relevant because value is perceptual. And once that perception from a customer viewpoint goes away, so does your reason to exist. Um, but it's it's interesting that, and, and 
we often I often put Toyota for all their their magnificence in the disrupted imitator space because they are playing this continuous catch-up. The difference between Tez and I, I argued with Steve Denning a lot, who's a good friend of mine. I argued with him a multitude of times uh, when he used to tout, you know, market cap as this sort of valuation figure of Tez. And I'm going, yes, but Toyota has a lot of cash and they have a lot of assets and they own a lot of, you know, they own half of Japan and they own most of everything that has a Toyota name on it, they own. And I said, that's a rich company. And market cap isn't a measure of the company's stability and robustness. Mm -hmm. While we need resilience, this ability to respond and adapt rapidly, we also need this level of stability and robustness, which is why they've been in business for 80 years and will continue probably for another few decades. Whereas when we look at the fragility of the the Tesla model, not bringing in Taleb's work or anything on this, but looking at the fragility of of Tesla, you see how you can go from hero to zero in a, a blink of an eye and he keeps doing it. Maybe yeah. it's his personality or whether he doesn't care because he's rich or whether or not it's just that he's, he's, you know, he's suffering from a limitation of his ability at that level of leadership. And he's, he's still acting like a disruptor. But now he needs to act like somebody stabilizing like Accio, stabilizing this large company that has a lot of assets around the globe. Um, I also question whether or not just as a side, his decision to do the amount of scaling he did in China because, you know, with the America, I was talking to a friend of mine from Texas Instruments the other day and about the major investment they're making in the U.S. to restabilize semiconductor manufacturing here Mm -hmm. and to bring that back on shore because of, uh, not just because of what happened in the pandemic and the supply chain interruptions because... It's strategic now. Yeah, and also because of secrecy and because of, you know, know, national security issues and things. And, and, And I think to myself, you know, hey, Elon, you went and put a whole bunch of stuff into China and you've... Trust me, they know everything about everything you do. Oh, yeah. Every bite of 100%. that information is now there. And how's that going to impact him when China decide that Tesla, they don't need Teslas because they've got the Chinese equivalent of Tesla, and that yep. will also destroy his dream. And and I do wonder when the manufacturers start pulling out hydrogen. And I test drove, fantastic vehicle, by the way. I test drove the Ineos Grenadier yesterday. I actually went off-road in it yesterday. Nice. I, I'm signed up for one. And one of the things they were telling is they already have a full hydrogen version of that, which is basically you can pull the BMW engine and trans out and drop the hydrogen plant straight in. It's literally bolt in, bolt out, and it's a hydrogen vehicle. And we know Ineos is one of the big players working in the hydrogen so of market and so what i'm what i wonder is where elon's going to be and where tesla owners are going to be five years from now eight years from now when the technology has moved on at such a pace and the industry has really started to understand what the long-term adoption is for replacement of fossil fuel gasoline diesel and things um and where he's going to be with that and i that's the fragility i see in the tesla business model Absolutely. And Toyota is such a good counterpoint to that because, you know, and it isn't just Toyota. I mean, it's 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 so many of these solid, profitable, long lasting Japanese companies. I, I was having lunch several years ago with one of the senior heads of, of Minty, the, the, mm-hmm. the Ministry of, of Industry yep. and Trade, most power, arguably the most powerful office in Japan. And, you know, the 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 senior leader who I was having lunch with said to me, he, and he said that, you know, we'll, we'll be totally honest. He said, we've invented nothing, but when we get something, 
we never cease to continue to improve on it. And he says, if you, if you look at our whole history, we, we brought things from China, you know, in, in ancient times, then we brought things from Europe, and now we brought things from America. But everything that we get, we continue to iterate on and build on and improve on. And he said, if you look at so many Western companies, they, they have these, these home run products that change the game completely. But then they, then they, they, they pat themselves on the backs, they light a cigar and they go play golf. You know, when I was living in the UK, I left the UK in the, the, the turn of the century when we clicked over to the millennium. And for lots of reasons, I'm, I'm not going back there in a great hurry. Um, but when I used <laughs> to live there, I said, <laughs> so I said, <laughs> America's great, you know. Um, so, uh, but I used to say that the Brits were very good at inventing things, but really bad at exploiting them. And they, they come up with these fantastic inventions. And we used to talk about the brain drain back in the seventies and yeah. the eighties and stuff. Uh, and we had these fantastic capable people that invented these fantastic uh, new things, but then they were always exploited either in the States at the time or in Japan latterly. And, and, and now of course in China, because they had the, the where for all to, to take them and to scale them up and to, to use them. Um, but it's funny as you talk about the Japanese sort of culture and the Japanese sort of way of doing things is that they're, they're all about stability. It's all the we, not the me. So there's a big shift yeah. in difference of the way they do things. But it is that, that, that Kaizen built into them, that, that not just yeah. continues to improve, always striving to try something new, to find new ways of doing things, which is really this essence of Kaizen, other than just iterating on the same thing. It's really striving to try something new. But you mentioned about being paid for Kaizen earlier on in our conversation, and there's a company called the Mirai Corporation, and Mirai meaning future, like the Toyota car, the Mirai. Yeah. But the Mirai Corporation pays... Uh, it's employees the equivalent of about five or six dollars, depending on the exchange rate for every mistake they make. So they incentivize people to report mistakes, report failure, so they can kind of improve that. And and it's this notion. And the, the other thing, Mirai Corporation, been in business, I think, since the 60s. Norman Bodak published a book on it many years ago. Bless him. He passed what did they make? I'm not ago. familiar with them, honestly. Yeah, so you should look at that. M-I-R-A-I, Mirai Corporation. It's called, The book is called The Happiest Company to Work For. But that will just give you an introduction, then you can do some research. And actually, the CEO of the corporation has done some uh, recorded interviews on, you'll find them on YouTube, uh, but he doesn't speak English, so there's translators there and subtitles. Um, but essentially, their, their business model was never make the same product anybody else has ever made. But what we do is we take products that people have made and improve upon them. And so one of right. the, the most famous products, you know, in you go into basements in places like Google and you see all these colored pipes running underneath the basement, mm -hmm. carrying yeah. different types of cables and, and, and whatever. So they were the first person to ever take the sort of uh, the galvanized steel uh, uh, trunking, as we would call it in the UK, where they put cables in and paint them different colors. And so they took something somebody else had done and then yeah. sort of changed it, ex iterated it with something. So the, the, the policy is never make something anybody else has ever made, but it doesn't mean they don't make a similar product, but mm -hmm. they, they improve upon it continuously. And, and they've been in business again since about the 60s, highly successful, never made a loss. Uh, never. And they have these practices that, as I say, they want people to reveal mistakes and reveal errors. And if you think about the bad incidents of Boeing with the 737 yeah. Max scandal, even the 787 sort of 
uh, stuff that they were doing as well. That production line had only just come back online after a couple of years of being out because of poor quality, because mm -hmm. the behaviors there were all incentivized yeah. differently. You know, produce more as fast as you can, but the whole quality and the ability to pull the metaphorical and on cord and speak up, stop the line, report failure was not allowed. You were not allowed to, to and then bad things right. happen. And in the worst cases, people died because right. mm -hmm. this, this, uh, solving problems in continuous improvement sort of focus and way of being wasn't present and your ability to red team and your ability to to push back and pull the and on cord wasn't there and in really safety critical environments now we're into sort of safety 2.0 and and human organizational performance you know in these high reliability organizations people talk about these behaviors are counter to what we want and in say in the worst case scenarios people lose lives as a result of it and that was all undoing the processes and the incentives that were put in place by my mentor, Alan Mullally, when he ran Boeing yeah. and was completely different model. He famously a devotee of TPS. Yes. And they and he built TPS into the 787 productions uh, program. And, in, and, and it was all ripped out by his successor because he couldn't figure out a way to make a name for himself after Mullally had turned Boeing around other than cutting cost. And I he didn't realize because he didn't know think how it works. that just I cutting mean, cost was going to undermine all the success that, that Alan had created at Boeing. And you're sort of underlining a little bit of, on a LinkedIn post I was on today where one of my often commenters and colleagues and, and, and another author, Bob Emiliani, who's a professor in Connecticut, you may or may not have heard of him. He's a bit of a controversial figure, but I like him a great deal immensely. But he, he's a bit of a controversial figure in lean circles. Um, but he talks about the system of profound privilege, sort of hmm. sort of stealing Deming's sort of profound knowledge statement and called yep. a system of profound privilege. Because I talk about leaders needing to be humble and vulnerable, and, and part of enabling psychological safety, something that's very important, of course, we often talk about, um, mm -hmm. is leaders need to show vulnerability and be humble and be open to critical feedback and be own, open to this continuous improvement and this sort of uh, enabling them to make better decisions and the right decisions and ask better questions. And, of course, the minute we remove that by having this sort of incentivized environment which doesn't incentivize them to do that it incentivizes them to become the number one to become mr popular or mrs popular or whoever it is and to actually build these towers of power these islands of disconnected effort as we often call these silos then these yeah. bad behaviors creep in where that just isn't possible in toyota for instance you don't have stock options in toyota right so you, you're not you know you don't have you're not incentivized to line your pockets, you're incentivized to build great products and to build safe products and to, to focus on the customer. And I'm afraid in a lot of industry that's lost and, and it's driven because of the way we, we've created what Bob calls this uh, system of profound privilege. Oh, wow. That is so true. Well, on that bombshell, we'll have to have you back on because there's so much to talk about. Um, but it's been such a pleasure talking with you today, Nigel. I've learned so much. I hope our listeners and viewers have learned a lot as well. And uh, I can't wait to, to talk to you again in the future because uh, this, is, this is great. Maybe. Thank you. And stay safe, Nigel. Good luck. Uh, thank you both for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.